This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Welcome to Race to Value. We have such an amazing podcast for you this week. We're going to be exploring the cutting edge advancements in healthcare that are reshaping the future of value-based care in rheumatology. I mean, believe it or not, we've done almost 200 episodes and we haven't had a conversation about transforming rheumatology care and, and where that intersects in this world of value-based care transformation. And this week, we're going to embark on a journey. We're going to go deep into the realm of rheumatology care. I mean, this is an important specialty. And for patients that need to access these specialists, they're so challenged. I mean, you know, it takes almost two and a half years to get a diagnosis. Patients are waiting, you know, six months to get a rheumatology appointment. I mean, these chronic inflammatory and autoimmune conditions, these are affecting millions of people worldwide. And, you know, there's just a constant inflammation, pain. There's such a host of complex challenges. And I, I just ask you, you know, what if we were at a frontier, a new frontier of care that leveraged technology and a value-based care approach to transform the lives of those dealing with autoimmune conditions. You know, Dan, this was such a, a really interesting conversation with our two guests this week. I'm really excited to share this content with our listeners. Eric, I completely agree. Listeners, exactly what Eric said. This is an eye-opening conversation where we get to explore how a virtual specialty practice the centered on improving patient outcomes and reducing healthcare costs is driving the transformation of rheumatology care. We're joined today by Anuj Patel and Dr. Elizabeth Ortiz. And Anuj is a seasoned digital health innovator and operator with over 15 years of experience in, a, in the healthcare industry. And Dr. Ortiz is a board certified rheumatologist with patient care experience ranging from large medical centers to concierge practices. Listeners, I think you're in for a treat today. There's definitely a, a unique and important conversation to have in your value library. Well, another great episode of Race to Value. This conversation, you know, revolutionizing rheumatology care is such an important one. Don't miss out on future episodes. Of course, if you like this one, please continue to check out uh, our other content. You can go to racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter to sign up. So you'll get a weekly email from us on uh, new episodes as they're released. We would love to get an Apple uh, review or rating. If you want to share your insights and leave us a note, we'd love to get your feedback as well. Thanks again for supporting us here at the Race to Value. And let's now hear from two of the leading experts as they talk about revolutionizing rheumatology care for chronic inflammatory conditions, Anuj Patel and Dr. Elizabeth Ortiz. Anuj, Dr. Ortiz, welcome to the Race to Value. It is so great to have you on the show this week. It's great to be here. Well, as we start our conversation today, I'm excited to learn about the application of full-spectrum rheumatological treatment and the movement to value-based care. And your company, Motto Health, is really on the leading edge of improving care for patients with autoimmune and chronic inflammatory conditions. And as I understand, it was created to increase Americans' access to care by offering virtual appointments with rheumatologists, condition management services, and lifestyle coaching on a telehealth platform. And there seems to be a really unsung opportunity here to improve care for a neglected patient population. I mean, all one has to do 
is look at the grim statistics to realize why a technology-enabled care solution is so desperately needed for this rising population of patients with rheumatological disease. And the rheumatology workforce faces a deficit of physicians trained to provide the highest quality care to patients with rheumatic diseases. And this deficit is projected to worsen over the next 10 to 15 years. I mean, in 2025, there's going to be 0.5 rheumatologists per 100,000 people. And that's a problem. I mean, if you look at every region in the United States, every single region is decrementing significantly. And the status quo and chronic inflammation care leaves patients waiting months, if not years, for a diagnosis and treatment from a rheumatologist. And at a time when chronic inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis are rising in the population, and this is also a really expensive patient population to treat with the average healthcare costs for a patient with rheumatoid arthritis being around 32000 a year. So I wanted to ask you both, with such a high per capita spend amount and a total opportunity of $30 billion in spending – to address with rheumatoid arthritis, why is it that we haven't seen ACOs and other risk-bearing entities actively addressing this patient segment? Why aren't autoimmune and chronic inflammatory conditions given the same consideration and value-based care like diabetes and congestive heart failure, COPD, or even kidney disease? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think the reason is, I think, twofold. One is sort of the fragmentation, I think, of the overarching autoimmune condition set. It really encompasses roughly around 80 different conditions. And, and oftentimes, you know, when you think about value-based care providers, either payers, ACOs, as you mentioned, they tend to think of these conditions somewhat individualistically. Nevertheless, in, in rheumatology, they're, they're treating patients across rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, um, and many other conditions. And so you can very much group them together. So I think the, the distribution across all these different individual conditions sometimes makes it difficult to group them the same way you can with very high prevalence conditions like congestive heart failure or COPD. The second thing I think is sort of just a shift in the market over the last 10 years. And I think value-based care essentially not adapting to the shift. And what I mean by that is, you know, the primary mechanism by which these conditions are treated nowadays is by utilization of, you know, very expensive injectable or infused biologic medications. Some of the most successful drugs of all time, drugs like Humira, Embril, and many others. Previously, these were, you know, very much what you would call specialty pharma. So the prevalence or distribution, if you will, you know, maybe wasn't super common, but as we've seen over the last decade, I mean, these, again, are some of the most ex expensive drugs in our system, and the utilization or prescription rate in rheumatology is increasing, and the price is essentially unmanaged. In many cases, some of these drugs have increased 30% year over year. So now this is very much becoming a problem for payers where they're actually looking at the data and recognizing, wait a second, we've actually had a problem here all along. So I think those are probably maybe some of the reasons why we have not yet seen a shift, but I think the shift very much is coming. I think rheumatology very much is adopting a similar path to what we've seen in other high-cost specialty areas that have successfully started the transition into value-based care. Yeah, and I would just add maybe a little bit of color to that. When talking about the wide breadth of conditions that rheumatologists take care of, it, there's really a lot of variety there. And I think, you know, as someone who has practiced rheumatology for a long time, I, I know that even for different types of providers, the world of rheumatology is a little bit of a black box. Not a lot of people understand our conditions unless you practice in rheumatology. And rheumatoid arthritis, I think, is probably further along than some of our other conditions as far as our abilities to even identify what our goals of treatment are. You know, the idea of remission and low disease activity is relatively well established within rheumatoid arthritis, but in a lot of my other conditions, it's not. And so, you know, when trying to talk about value-based care, when you don't really, you know, there's just so much variety amongst patients, even patients who carry the same diagnosis, their treatment can be very different. 
Well, Dr. Ortiz, Anoush, this is a great foundation to start this conversation with. Thank you so much. I, I want to dive into a part of this that uh, was introduced at the start, and that's the finding a convenient home for patients with autoimmune and chronic inflammatory conditions. It's really challenging due to the limited availability of rheumatological specialty care. I mean, we've got patients waiting so long to see a rheumatologist that it takes on average two and a half years to receive a confirmatory diagnosis. And the provider shortage, just like everywhere else, is going to get worse with 50% of adults and 32% of pediatric rheumatologists projected to retire over the next 10 years. So while we're seeing advances made in medical therapy for rheumatic disease, the big question is whether or not there will be rheumatologists available to prescribe the drugs and effectively treat these patients. If we don't create a scalable virtual care model, the healthcare cost trajectory for this patient population will continue to increase. And we will see patients who are inflicted with these treatable conditions suffering needlessly. So by leveraging technology and improving access to rheumatological expertise, healthcare providers can enhance convenience and ensure timely care for patients with autoimmune and chronic inflammatory conditions. I'd love to have you dive in and share how you think a convenient virtual first model and assigned health coaching can help patients access the care they need more conveniently and expeditiously to improve clinical outcomes. Yeah, no, it's it's true. We are definitely facing a big problem. And I would even add another element to what you were describing. You know, when we, we talk about conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, there is a known phenomenon of this you know, kind of window of opportunity, meaning we can have really big impacts on their outcomes, you know, decades down the road by catching their disease early. And so the difficulty getting in to see a rheumatologist and making that diagnosis, you know, not only impacts the patient, you know, today and the suffering that they have to go through, but also has a big impact on their clinical outcome down the road. So yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. I think the solution to this problem is going to have to be, you know, multifaceted. And I think virtual care definitely plays a role. One of the reasons why we have such a problem getting into rheumatologists is when you see a rheumatologist and you have an autoimmune condition, you are with that doctor forever. There is hardly, there's very little discharging from a rheumatologist's office because our conditions are chronic. And so the capacity for a rheumatologist to see a new patient it has an endpoint because there's only so much capacity in a clinic. And so I think utilizing both virtual care as well as our primary care part partners and physician assistants and nurse practitioners to help offload some of that maintenance burden for patients who are just on maintenance therapy and doing well, I think is one way we can increase access. Um, the virtual aspect also allows us to get into areas that have very limited access to rheumatologists. You know, people will drive upwards of two to three hours, sometimes crossing state lines in order to see a rheumatologist. And by having a virtual platform, we can literally meet them where they're at and um, really help get their treatment going faster than it would whenever they have to drive two hours back and forth to see a rheumatologist every three months. And I just want to build upon what Dr. Ortiz just said, highlighting the fact that virtual care very much can sort of democratize access, if you will. We saw obviously a big shift towards that during the COVID-19 pandemic and things like primary care or behavioral health. But um, just to kind of like highlight the the, the enormous gap that a lot of patients, especially those in Texas, um, face in terms of accessing rheumatological care. Of the counties in the state of Texas, 213 of the 254 counties in Texas don't have a rheumatologist practice. So that means over 5 million Texans live in a county that does not currently have a rheumatologist. So we've definitely talked to many, many patients, to Dr. Ortiz's point, that have quite literally driven hundreds of miles um, just for the rheumatologist appointment. And that's just not tenable, um, especially when you're trying to build sort of a long-term reoccurring relationship with your provider. Well, there's also this huge opportunity in value-based care for rheumatology to tackle the exorbitant specialty cost drugs. And you mentioned earlier, you know, Remicade and Humira. I mean, some of these drugs have an annual cost of $70,000. And 
you know, Humira was in the news recently since Mark Cuban's online pharmacy announced that it's that it'll it'll be selling a biosimilar of of Humira for a steep discount. And it's about time. I mean, the original Humira patent expired in 2016 and the makers of that drug, Avvi, filed a about 132 patents or so, as I understand, and extended the patent life to 2023. And during that time, they raised the price 30 times from $522 per syringe to $2,984 per syringe. And it now costs $78,000 per year to treat one patient with Humira. And consequently, that drug company, it rose to a worth of $270 billion as the 23rd most valuable company on the stock market. It's $80 billion larger than Walt Disney. So this Humira example really shows just how how big of a challenge it is with specialty pharmacy and, and just how ineffective the PBMs are and controlling specialty pharmacy costs. I mean, it's, it's an obscene example, but, uh, you know, I think it's emblematic of the challenges that providers practicing in a value-based care model have against fighting the powerful forces of big business and healthcare. And as I understand, Motto Health has been quite effective in addressing these high specialty pharmacy costs through biosimilars. And I'd love to get your take on specialty pharmacy and how care coordination can reduce direct spending on biologic drugs. I mean, what role do biosimilars play in value-based rheumatology care? And and how can an integrated care delivery model like yours more effectively support patients undergoing a transition in their medication regimen? And and what should be considered when you're titrating a patient off of an expensive biologic drug? Yeah, thanks, Eric. So I'm definitely going to let Dr. Ortiz speak to the clinical decisions that are made regarding a patient's treatment plan and the decision to let a patient continue on their current therapy or to make a, a medication switch, um, depending on you know how they're faring in our program. But to kind of answer your earlier or like your upfront questions around, you know, what are the primary drivers around making the shift towards a value-based care delivery model in rheumatology? I think it's, it's you know, I don't want to over-index too heavily on the role of biosimilars. Um, I think it's a great sort of movement that we're seeing biosimilars that have been approved and continue to be approved, also with sort of um, interchangeability designation I think that's great, obviously, you know, for the market. And you're going to see a lot of their adoption on specialty pharmacy formularies. So the other, there are also a lot of other aspects that fall into value-based care, which is thinking about the site of care, but then also just the overall health of the patient and ensuring that they're adhering to a plan that puts them on a path towards managing their condition better, because we have to keep in mind that this is a chronic population and they're going to be managing this, this condition, you know, essentially in perpetuity. So, so the couple of things that I just want to add are, you know, we look at things like the site of care. So a lot of rheumatology practices, you know, are affiliated with inpatient hospital settings. And so they can infuse patients um, or do procedures that allow them to bill at an inpatient rate. Um, obviously, as a virtual first model, we don't do that. So, you know, there's definitely better control of cost, if you will. We're happy, you know, we like to think of ourselves a bit like Switzerland. So we're happy to partner with any home or outpatient infusion initiatives that PBMs or payers may have already set up. Um, in many ways, those can be much more patient-centric because the patient doesn't have to travel all the way back to the office just for their infusion every couple of weeks. Um, and then the last thing is, you know, we are trying to manage all aspects of a patient's health that are related to their condition. This means a structured program that encompasses diet, managing other lifestyle factors that are clinically validated to manage their underlying chronic inflammatory condition. We see a lot of times patients just overall improving their health, losing weight, A1Cs dropping. So, so their overall cost of care goes down. And, and so this integrated model Yes, it's an investment upfront, but it pays dividends in the sense that you have a healthier patient that's compliant to this treatment plan and seeing results and therefore, um, you know, able to control the cost better. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's also important to maybe give a little context as to how we got 
to where we are, you know, in, in, in rheumatology and the use of biologics, because, you know, biologics really have changed the landscape of how we approach and treat conditions like RA, psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis, you know, long-term complications that were really considered common to a generation of rheumatologists that were right before me have really become the rare exception for the generation that's come right after me. And, you know, we're no longer reliant on medications such as corticosteroids or NSAIDs, which carry really a lot of undesirable long-term side effects. And for a field that for many, many years was kind of considered the field where you just watch people and help people into disability and you only had aspirin and prednisone, the advent of these targeted therapies based on specific research around autoimmune inflammatory conditions really changed the game. And it really created a lot of excitement where for years, it was all about adding biologics, adding biologics. And now we're coming to a point where we're starting to critically think about how we can subtract and, and how to do that safely and if we can do that. And there are a number of factors that we have to consider when thinking about trying to get someone off a biologic. You know, what other comorbidities do they have? What prognostic factors did they have when they first presented? Um, have they been how have they been able to tolerate other medications and the other DMARs that they might have been on? What lifestyle factors might be contributing to their condition and their compliance with medication? These are all things that we have to consider. And the data so far is mixed, but there are signs that when done safely and in the right type of patient, tapering and even discontinuing the biologic therapy is possible. But what I have found is that it really takes time in the clinic to really evaluate someone's fitness for tapering. And that's time that's not often available. Along with that is like the lifestyle stuff that I was mentioning. Um, you know, the internet loves to talk about diet and food. I would argue that sleep and stress management are probably more important when helping someone control their autoimmune condition. And Again, similar to figuring out someone's fitness for tapering, it takes time in the clinic to go over sleep and stress management and these other lifestyle factors, especially when your visits are really short. And so having the health coaching and these other touch points really allows for an expanded team to get the information that we need to then make the decisions about their care plan and then their tapering plan so that we can do it in a safe manner while keeping an eye on them. You know, it's not a fast process and it certainly can be punctuated by some false starts, but it's really the multidisciplinary team approach that allows it to happen. You guys have spoken about how the rheumatoid arthritis is one of a hundred or so different rheumatological conditions, but let's focus in on it for a second. It's a chronic immune disease that primarily affects individuals during their working years typically between the ages of 30 and 50, and the prevalence of RA among employees can lead to substantial burdens on employers in terms of productivity loss and absenteeism and healthcare costs. And Dr. Ortiz, you just referred to it as helping them into disability. Um, and the impact on work can be so profound since permanent work disability is common among patients with rheumatoid arthritis. In addition to the consequences for the patient, like a decreased quality of life, the work disability also leads to high costs. So we know that one third, approximately one third of the total cost for patients with RA is caused by production losses. Those include things like lost work hours and time when patients are working, but their ability to meet work demands is limited. And recently, the greatest impact on costs for patients with RA was shown to be reduced performance while working followed by wage loss from quitting or changing jobs, then decreased working hours and finally missed work days. This implies that at-work productivity loss is an important concern, since work hours are not only lost incidentally through sick leave, but also more structurally and profoundly by at-work productivity loss. Uh, I'm hoping you can share uh, your perspective on the particular challenges faced by employers in better managing the provision of healthcare services for this segment of their employee base? And how can a platform like yours better help them address pharmacy and medical spend while also helping them to address the high costs associated with lost productivity and absenteeism? Yeah, thanks, Daniel. That's a great question. So, you know, I think two factors here. One is 
just simply access to care. And so we've, I think, talked about this pretty extensively, but, you know, so many patients struggle with obtaining relevant access to rheumatological care. So when you look at a condition like RA or other autoimmune conditions, patients take on average, I think four and a half years before they're diagnosed correctly. So you can imagine that time they see on average around five different specialists, the amount of presenteeism or absenteeism loss is quite extensive to employers. So bridging or like providing better access to care, which is obviously a tenant of motto through our virtual model, definitely helps prevent this sort of long diagnostic odyssey that patients undergo. The second thing I think is obviously related to, all right, well, once diagnosed, you know, how are they being treated? And so, you know, there's, there's good evidence to suggest that untreated rheumatoid arthritis costs employers, you know, I think something like a significant amount of absenteeism every year and not to mention presenteeism as well, given, you know, the, the, the symptoms associated with an autoimmune condition, which often can lead to, you know, joint pain or fatigue. And to your last point, this is very much square in the working part of their career. Um, the two diagnostic nodes between 18 and 29 and 40 and 49, you know, really affect people when they're square in the working part of their lives. So, so yeah, so all that goes to say that if we can treat patients sooner, you can start them on a path by which their condition is better managed and it can reduce this burden or this cost that employers face in patients that are going undiagnosed and once diagnosed going, you know, receiving essentially suboptimal care and and their condition essentially not being managed well. I would agree. I think it also kind of speaks to a larger problem about just how how siloed our, our medical system tends to be. And that with these autoimmune patients and rheumatoid arthritis is no exception, that to get people as healthy and active as they want to be, it usually takes more than the rheumatologist. It takes a physical therapist, a dietitian. Um, I have really come to be a big supporter of health coaching. You know, it really is more than the physician. Well, I wanted to engage you both on another topic that is right at the center of value-based care transformation, and that's health equity. And I attended a conference uh, last year, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and I remember hearing Dr. Dexter Sherney talk about this concept of allostatic load and how it impacts inflammation and and ultimately leads to disease. And, you know, for the listeners out there that are unfamiliar with this term allostatic load, it refers to the cumulative physiological wear and tear on the body that occurs in response to chronic stressors. And it encompasses the various physiological processes that can help the body maintain stability, adapt to stress, including hormonal, immune, and cardiovascular systems. So when this allostatic load becomes excessive or prolonged, you know, due to stress, you know, and other other things, uh, it can really have an impact on inflammation and overall health. So there's this connection between allostatic load and inflammation and 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 chronic disease and it's been talked about a great deal in the study of health equity since underserved populations are under so much stress right now and they have been for as far as we know in this country so i just wanted to engage you on this idea i mean what is the connection between this allostatic load which is that cumulative burden of chronic stress and life events and inflammatory conditions and how are marginalized and minoritized groups disproportionately impacted and and may experience worse outcomes with with rheumatology care. Can you discuss perhaps some of the racial and income disparities that you see in, in, in rheumatology care? Yeah, no, this is a great question. I really appreciate it. I, I think it's a question, at least in the rheumatology world, that we're not talking about enough. You know, we have for years known that there is a relationship between stress and autoimmune conditions. We know that when someone has an autoimmune condition, they can have some sort of stressful moment or stressful time, and that will usually precipitate a flare of their condition. You know, but despite that acknowledgement, I, I would say rheumatology isn't great at educating and offering recommendations for stress management as a legitimate treatment tool. And you know, the concept of stress leading to flares is, I think, also limited and 
more in line with what you're talking about, just kind of this allostatic and cumulative effect of stress and how that can contribute to the actual development of the autoimmune condition. And there's a lot of interesting work being done now looking at an expanded definition of stress to include like adver adverse childhood events and PTSD and how early exposure to trauma and stress can then lead to development of an overactive immune system that then leads to autoimmunity later in life. And I think that when then going to the next question about marginalized and minoritized groups, that foundation of understanding the adverse childhood events and PTSD really then sets the stage for exactly what you're saying of like, well, if you have now these larger social structures that have put certain people um, in positions of repeated discrimination and stress, well, how is that then led to some of the numbers that we have forever seen. For example, in lupus, we know that um, Black and Hispanic patients have more severe disease, tend to get disease at earlier ages. And up until recently, most of the research into why that was the case was looking at um, access to healthcare, looking at genetics. And it's only in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years that a focus on the social structures and the stress of that how that can be contributing as well. You know, we know that access to healthcare is a problem, but as we were talking about earlier, access to rheumatology in particular is a problem for a lot of people. And is that the only way to explain these differences in the numbers that we see? And I think that um, there's some interesting work showing that it's not really the only thing and that it has a lot to do with some of the events, the stresses, the trauma that we are exposed to at various stages in our life. Well, I want to dive a little bit deeper into this question. And Eric mentioned it at the start of setting up that question. And I appreciate your response, Dr. Ortiz. But let's go further into the uh, what was mentioned earlier about the lifestyle factors and how diet, stress management, sleep, and exercise play an important role in improving clinical outcomes for individuals with autoimmune and chronic inflammatory conditions. When you think about how helpful a healthy diet can be in reducing inflammation and supporting overall well-being, or mindfulness and meditation with practicing mindfulness-based techniques like meditation and deep breathing exercises to reduce stress levels and promote re relaxation, I mean, these things are shown to have a positive impact on autoimmune and chronic inflammatory conditions. And consistent sleep is crucial for the body's self-healing and immune function. Immune function. Can you further expound on the impact of lifestyle in improving clinical outcomes for patients who are dealing with autoimmune and chronic inflammatory conditions? And, and how can a virtual specialty practice like yours effectively engage patients in a personalized lifestyle program that improves their outcomes and lowers the medical spend? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. There is data showing that diet, stress, sleep, exercise, and I'm going to add one more, community can all really impact positively rheumatoid arthritis and autoimmune patients' clinical outcomes and sets them up to be in as good a position as, they're, as possible to get off some of the more expensive medications. The internet loves the di loves diet. Um, people love to focus on diet, and you can go online and find an expert in almost any kind of diet claiming that it will cure your autoimmune disease. I am I tend to not think in a one size fits all kind of way. I I like to follow the data when there is data, and over and over again, an anti inflammatory Mediterranean diet really um, seems to be the way to go. But even beyond data, like you said, sleep is proving to be super important, stress management, movement of some sort. You know, it's, it's, I often say to patients, if you don't move, if you don't use it, you lose it, which is the case even when you have an autoimmune condition. And these are things that rheumatologists are aware of, but don't really have the time. And now in my experience with Mato working alongside dietitians and health coaches, I can firmly say we're not necessarily the best people to provide guidance on how to actually implement these changes. You know, making these kind of lifestyle habit changes is hard. 
And, you know, if it was easy, we would all be doing it, um, but it's hard. It's you have to break it down into bite sized pieces. You need to have support. You need to have an accountability partner. And that's really the role of the health coaches and having it all be in a virtual platform that lives on someone's phone. It really allows us to kind of be in their home with them, be with them as they're trying to make these changes and you know, adjust with them. If they're coming up against um, certain obstacles, we can work with them to get around those obstacles so that we can keep them on track to make these changes. You know, in a traditional rheumatology practice where they see their rheumatologist every three months and are given a handout on the, how to sleep better, or how to exercise better, you know, we, we know that that's not as effective as having someone right by your side supporting you while you try to make those changes. And yes, they're absolutely impactful. And they are the difference between someone saying that they're doing well and agreeing with their doctor and someone who's not. Because, you know, we have um, a known entity in rheumatology where the physician thinks the patient's doing well or, or you know, their disease is well controlled, but yet the patient thinks very differently. And what we have found is these are the elements that can get those two to agree. Well, I'm just thinking about what you said, Dr. Ortiz, about the importance of community and reminds me of some of the research that's come out of, you know, about these blue zones. And, you know, these are areas of the world where people live longer on average, sometimes, you know, well, in, you know, into their hundreds, even there's places like Okinawa, Japan and Loma Linda, California, places in Italy and they they found that plant-based diet and uh, having community is really, you know, two of the common variables there. Just thinking about community, you know, one can't help but think about this pandemic we were recently in, you know, where we had social isolation and that there's been an exacerbation of mental health in this country. And, you know, that goes back to, you know, what we discussed earlier with allostatic load and but also, you know, people just dealing with some of these chronic inflammatory and autoimmune conditions in and of themselves. I mean, they have, you know, in dealing with this disease, a significant psychological impact, you know, that they're dealing with, you know, just through having to suffer through chronic pain and physical limitations, fatigue, the uncertainty of living with a chronic illness. And, you know, that leads to emotional distress and anxiety and depression and a decreased quality of life. And, you know, what we've seen research that has shown that chronic inflammation can significantly impact mental health and increase the risk of developing depression and anxiety disorders. And this relationship between inflammation and mental health is bidirectional. I mean, inflammatory disorders can contribute to the development of depression and anxiety, while mental health conditions can also lead to increased inflammation in the body. So I, I wanted to ask you both, I mean, can you discuss how behavioral health treatment can address these psychological aspects, you know, helping patients cope with the emotional challenges to improve their overall well-being? And how does a virtual care program like Motto Health offers, you know, helps patients access these behavioral health providers since they're also in such short supply also? Yeah, no, it's very important points. You know, behavioral health and mental health support is really key in a well-rounded approach to anyone with an autoimmune condition. It's very, um, it's a multifaceted problem because as you said, the inflammation itself can be contributing to any kind of mood disorders, but it, there's also a lot of other factors. You know, the the mere act of having these symptoms, going to different doctors, having lots of tests done, seeing lots of specialists, you know, the months to years someone can be on that journey before landing on a diagnosis. And even once you have a diagnosis, there's some trial and error and finding the right treatment. That in itself is grueling, it's life-changing, it's isolating, and it can definitely lead to a lot of mental health issues that then complicate our outcomes later on. And you know, like you were saying, it's bi-directional the way I usually describe it with patients, because we've made a lot of headway with mental health, but there is for some people still a stigma and um, people are very um, careful to not want, or people are worried, I should say, about 
discussing any mental health problem as if it will be then assumed that that's the crux of all of their issues. And I always say, no, 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 it's it's like a chicken or egg thing. It kind of doesn't matter. It's like what we're dealing with now. And so we need to address it. We need to address all, all the things, including mental health. And it's key. I, again, it's just like some of the lifestyle factors. It can be the difference between you know, someone having their inflammation controlled as best as we can with the tools that we have and, you know, with biologics and the other medications we have. And then we check the labs and we can say, okay, it looks like your inflammation's better, but yet someone still isn't feeling better. And the missing component is oftentimes mental health support. And, and so I think it's really important. And as far as how we're able to help patients with Motto and with our virtual platform, I think it's two things. One is because we have a multidisciplinary team that includes medical providers, health coaches, and dietitians, our patients have a lot of touch points. They're seeing a lot of people. And if I happen to miss something or the dietitian happens to miss something, well, then the health coach is able to catch it. And then we discuss it as a team and are able to address it a lot faster than someone who is just going to see a rheumatologist every three months. And you're absolutely right. Similar to rheumatologists, uh, finding mental health providers can be a challenge. And that's where we really lean on our like kind of virtual colleagues. You know, in, in the virtual space, a lot of mental health providers are offering virtual services. And so we will find services that can then go to the patient just like we can, kind of meet them where they're at and provide the support that they need. Yeah, also well said. I think the only thing I'll just add to what Dr. Ortiz kind of articulated is so much of treating a rheumatological condition, including the underlying behavioral health aspect, is the idea of just recognizing that it, it, you require both collaborative care and longitudinal care. And so what I mean by that is, you know, we combine methodically clinical care along with care delivered from our health coaching team. We're tracking patients using validated patient-reported outcome tools. And then, yes, you know, I think we reached this sort of inflection point, you know, especially accelerated through the pandemic of virtual behavioral health providers. And so that makes it really easy for us to provide the same kind of high-quality virtual first care that we're providing for their rheumatological condition, but then also be able to refer them to a similar experience for behavioral health. Well, thanks, Anuj and, and uh, Dr. Ortiz for such insightful comments. And, you know, I mentioned earlier just the impact of the pandemic on behavioral health, but it's also had a, a direct impact on what I believe is, you know, this important intersection with rheumatology care. And, and that's long COVID. We, you know, we've heard about that in the news. I was hoping you could shed some light on this essential role of rheumatology care and understanding and addressing long COVID. I mean, how important is collaboration between rheumatology specialists infectious disease experts and other healthcare professionals for unraveling the mysteries of this condition and offering much needed support for those living with long COVID? Yeah, no, it's, it's an important question. And, and I think that um, COVID has really given us the opportunity to learn many lessons. And one of them, I hope, is that we will no longer keep ourselves siloed into our respective specialties. And for anyone who's suffered with conditions like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome, those patients will be the first to tell you that it's maddening to have to go to multiple different specialists for, you know, this condition and everyone just kind of sticks to their own, to their own area. Um, and long COVID really does require the specialties of infectious disease, endocrinology, cardiology, neurology, and rheumatology. And I think it's going to be through collaboration with all of those specialties that we're able to make some headway and not under not only understanding what's going on, but then developing, you know, treatments and care plans for those patients. I think that, again, an opportunity to highlight um, something that some patients had been experiencing for a long time, but then, yeah, COVID just really shone the light on it. And I'm very hopeful that we see some positive results from it. Well, Dr. Ortiz, Anoush, as we're wrapping up our conversation today, we'd love to hear your parting thoughts on the future of rheumatology care. 
the healthcare system at present is seemingly unable to expand rheumatological capacity. We've talked about this a little bit, but just to further that conversation, we're not we're not increasing fellowships in practice. And over half of the rheumatologists in practice are experiencing high levels of burnout tied to the things that we've discussed today. So in the long term, what are your thoughts about how we can better improve rheumatological care in our country at a system level so that we can really do what's needed for improving patient outcomes, improving their experience, and driving down the costs of the system? Yeah, so you're right. Fellow spots are not expanding at the rate. They're, we've been adding spots every year, but it's certainly not going to be at a rate that that makes a significant impact. And I, I think really the solution, there's lots of different approaches that we can take. I think partnering with our PCP and nurse practitioner and PA partners and colleagues will really be helpful to help identify patients early on who needs to be seen by a rheumatologist, and then also educating them and empowering them to help us with some of that maintenance care of patients who are um, on chronic medications that need, you know, just regular labs done or, or those kinds of things checked. Um, I think that's one way we can relieve, alleviate the rheumatologist so that they can assist with making new diagnosis. I also think on a systems level, a reevaluation of how the rheumatologist is reimbursed, I think is useful. You know, I know that we're, we're talking about value-based care, which is focused on outcomes, but I worry that without acknowledgement and a real plan to have services like health coaching and mental health available for rheumatic patients, then the onus really ends up falling on the rheumatologist for these outcomes. And that I worry will further worsen this burnout problem. So having a real plan to include these types of services for our autoimmune patients that will then allow the rheumatologist to do the rheumatology, um, I think is, is, a, is, a, is a way we can alleviate the system and help with burnout. And then the last thing I'll say is that when talking about the rheumatologist workforce, you have to also have a discussion about medical education cost. You know, young doctors are coming out with very large loans, and it definitely plays a role in their decision when deciding what field to go into. And, you know, rheumatology is oftentimes at the top of the list when it comes to happiness and work-life balance, but is nowhere near the top when it comes to reimbursement or, or salary. And so I think medical education costs has to be a part of the discussion as well. Yeah, and I think one thing I'll just add on to what Dr. Ortiz said is to that sort of reimbursement cost, I think a lot of what a value-based future could look like for rheumatology includes you know, and empowering rheumatologists to manage the total cost of care for what is a, a fairly expensive patient population. And so making that sort of slow shift away from this sort of like transactional care where you're seeing high degrees of burnout because rheumatologists, unfortunately, are seeing, you know, 30 plus patients a day. Because when you look at the sort of fee-for-service reimbursement codes, you know, well, just seeing a patient for a 15-minute visit like that's, that's not moving the needle too much on reimbursement, but ideally, you know, you're, you're doing procedures for a few patients or infusing a patient in your own practice setting. And that kind of drives a lot of revenue. So, so that is where, you know, when you're actually moving to a model where now you're actually managing either through a subcapitation arrangement or upside risk sharing agreement, you know, you're managing the total cost of care, you're able to actually spend a lot more time with a patient, recognize that this is a chronic population. So you want to build that sort of like long lasting longitudinal care model. And that hopefully, you know, incentivizes more rheumatologists to, to pivot towards this type of model. It encourages more people to enter into the field of rheumatology, um, reduces burnout. So, so that's obviously the future we're all kind of like gunning or pining for. Well, Anuj, it, it's a great vision, you know, having this longitudinal care model and, you know, and of course, you know, we have to find ways to leverage technology capabilities, enhance access. And you mentioned, of course, the payment model transformation that has to take place for us to align the incentives. And I'm just 
I've been, you know, following your work and news for quite a while. We've known each other for a couple of years and, you know, we've been very uh, much in lockstep in terms of our uh, commitment to value-based care. And, you know, Dr. Ortiz, it's been a pleasure to get to connect with you for the first time today, you know, during our discussion. And I, I just can't help but think about this, uh, you know, value-based care equation, you know, yeah, you have the the costs, you know, you have the improvement in outcomes, but there's also this this need to, you know, create more consumerism. And, you know, we, you know, I mean, patients really want the same thing that anyone else wants when, you know, when you, you know, buy something online or go out to dinner or, you know, you order a, a ride share, you know, they want convenience and competence. And it really seems like, you know, what you're building there at Motto Health is really creating a new model of specialty care that improves the health and happiness for individuals that are suffering from these chronic inflammatory conditions. You know, as we finish up our our discussion today, uh, yeah, I'd love to invite you to you know share a little bit about the company and how people can track you know what you're doing and find out more. It just it seems like a model that everyone should know about. Sure, thanks, Eric. Motto is a uh, provider of virtual rheumatology care. We are established in Texas. We are. Um, essentially the same way you would see a rheumatologist in person, you can see a motto rheumatologist virtually. But what we also do is one step further, you know, beyond the ability to bill insurance and diagnose and treat and order labs and write prescriptions, we pair every motto patient with a health coach and provide access to our dietitian. And so we take patients through a structured program that lasts around six months to get them better educated and adherent to some of the proven lifestyle factors that we discussed that can ideally get patients on a healthier, happier path towards managing their autoimmune condition. We are in, like I mentioned, in Texas, we're also providing care and patients in California, and we're working with a lot of large provider groups in the state of Texas. But of course, we're always looking to grow and we're looking for like-minded value-based care leaders to work with and partner with. Um, and we're also always looking for either rheumatologists that are interested in our model, as well as other primary care physicians that are looking for a home um, for their patients that are oftentimes, you know, struggling with access to finding a rheumatologist. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground today, you know, Dr. Ortiz and Anuj. I know I have learned so much and inspired by the work that you're doing in revolutionizing rheumatology care for patients that are dealing with these chronic inflammatory and autoimmune uh, conditions. I mean, we're getting from pain to progress. This is a driving force in value-based care. I, I commend you all for, for you both for your leadership and, and really what you're building as, a, as an asset for patients to, to get the care and the treatment and the, the integrated d delivery of uh, holistic care that they truly deserve. Thank you both. Very great conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been great.